All right. Well, come on back, and um, we're going to open up to the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, or as other places, it's known as the Song of Songs. Or in some places, it's just simply called the Canticles, which is a word for singing or songs. Did you know this? The Bible tells us, how about this? The Bible tells us in the story of Solomon that he wrote 1,005, I believe, 1,005 songs. But this one is the song of songs. This is his number one hit. If he would have hit this one, you know, kind of like, uh, wasn't it Paul Anka did the theme for The Tonight Show? And everybody knew, nobody here, look, the young kids are like, what, Tonight Show? And, you know, who would guess The Tonight Show? And Paul Anka then, you just sit back and relax over one song, right? This is Solomon's song of songs. I mean, think about it. When the Bible says the holy of holies... That's the room in the temple where the Shekinah glory was. No one got in there except for one person on one day, right? The Holy of Holies. We have a name for Jesus. He's the King of Kings. I mean, we got people in the news right now who are running around and they think they're going to summits and they're doing political and big-time deals, and they think they're the prime ministers of prime ministers, or the czar of czars, if you know what I mean. But Jesus is the king of kings. And see, that's the point. <laughs> this is the song of songs. You know... Most of the time in school when you get to the, you know, you're in English class and you get to that place where you have to start going over poetry, most, most people don't like it. This is just a little aside, has nothing to do with the sermon. But you know who my favorite poet is? Ruth Graham. If you've never read Ruth Graham's poems... Man, her poetry is amazing. Little known fact about Ruth. Okay, get back to the Song of Solomon. But why is poetry so effective? It's because it sticks in your heart, your mind. You can say somebody's beautiful, and yeah, they're beautiful. But you can describe them in poetry that brings out your heart and then sticks with them in a word picture, folks, you have it all the time. A lot of times on a Facebook profile or a, or a Twitter thing or an Instagram thing, people have the lines to poetry as their theme of their life. Why is that? Because it hits them in the right way. There's something in a poem or a song that hit them so hard down deep in the tenderest parts of their place, their soul. And it resonated with them. That's the Song of Songs. And as I said, as we were getting ready to do 
communion, I think one of the reasons God put this in here, as we examine today a man and a woman and their rightful desire for each other in the confines of a marriage, I think one of the reasons God put this in here is to awaken our desire for Jesus Christ. I mean, come on, folks. You open up Genesis, and you're all set. You get the one-year Bible out, and you want to know all what happened on every six days. You try to memorize it. It always fails, at least for me. And you don't really get that far. I mean, you get right there in chapter 2, after God has made light and darkness and divided it and put this blanket of moisture and the land he creates and the plants and the heavens he makes and the sea and everything in it he makes and everything on uh, all the creeping things and everything on the earth he makes that and then he makes man in in the image of God. I mean, just the, the ultimate in creation. I mean, just look at the human eye and you tell me that God isn't the amazing creator your heart and how it operates. Amazing. The way in which you have your own cooling system. When it's hot out, you... I mean, come on, folks. This didn't happen out of the primordial soup. There ain't no way. You, You... Well, anyway, don't get me started on that. And then all of a sudden, right out of the middle of nowhere, you're like, yeah, you're just bouncing along. You're getting all the answers to the grand questions of how we got here and great it's so amazing the lord just tells us and then bang marriage like if i was writing this i'm not sure that's where i would have started and yet he does because you see marriage is mysteriously linked to the good news of Jesus Christ woven all the way throughout the Bible. Now, hold on here. There's some singles here. Are you a lesser person because you're married? No, in fact, the Bible says you have amazing, great advantages. You can serve the Lord uninhibited. With all that you've got, you you know what I got to do, or at least you know what Jan's got to do? She's got to worry about me and getting me to the right spot and doing this and telling me, you know, this and that. I mean, we, we have things that encumber us that singles never have. And I know that there's some desires here to be married, and that's fine. It, it is a desire, right? But you're not second-class citizen because you're single. No way, no how. Because at the end of the story, whether you're single or you find yourself now single or you're married, we're all going to be wed, married to Jesus Christ. Well, throughout the Bible, though, we get through creation and then God creates this people. You know them as Israelites or the Jews. 
And oftentimes in the Bible, what does Jesus call his people, the Israelites, the bride, the one who is wed to him, the father. And if you read the prophets, <laughs> the Israelites turned their back on God and actually committed spiritually spiritual adultery. And there's some very blunt words throughout Jeremiah and other places about what they did, how they played the harlot spiritually. Isn't that interesting? And it seems in the early part of Jeremiah 2 and 3 that God seems to cut off the bride, and yet he doesn't. He keeps pursuing her, and then he sends this amazing, I mean amazing. Every time I have to read this, have to, or get to read this prophet, every time I get to read this prophet, I'm a little hesitant. It's called Hosea. (laughs) Because God asked this one prophet to marry a prostitute. And then... After they're wed and they're kind of doing okay, she goes out and does it some more. And guess what God says? As she's being sold off in the public square, I want you to go back and redeem her. Marriage, unbelievably, mysteriously, beautifully linked to the gospel of Jesus Christ all throughout. And then we get to the New Testament, and I want to read it with you. Turn with me to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Here, Paul is talking about, in chapter 5, walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. And one of the ways you walk in wisdom, praise the Lord, we did it today, is we sing, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why am I telling you that? Why am I telling you that right there? Because this, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, is a love song, a love poem set to music. There really ought to be, shouldn't there be? Instead of the 70s and the 80s love songs that I listened to that were really bad for me, there should be more of us putting this to song because this is the way it was always intended. But in Ephesians 5, he says this in Chapter 20, give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it comes, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Circle the word submit or don't, but circle it in your mind. Hey, wives, he says in chapter or verse 22. Uh Uh-oh, here it comes. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Don't just stop reading there. Don't let the hair on the back of your neck go up and then shut down, ladies. Because as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. How is Christ the head of the church? And what did he accomplish 
on behalf of the church. Well, folks, he submitted <laughs> to the point of death. He laid down his life for the bride. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. But uh, don't stop there. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25 says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Give yourself for and to your wife. We have a lot of emotionally stunted people who are called men who think it's really cool and tough to never say anything to their wives. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You're to give yourself to her, not only physically, but also emotionally and socially and in all things. Give yourself. Let her know who you are. Tell her what you think and feel. You say, wait a minute. Well, I'm not saying it gave himself for her, and what is the mission of the husband that he might sanctify? Did you know that? Your wife's not just for your ordering around. But your mission is to sanctify and cleanse her, what? With the washing of the water by the word. Get your wife to church. Read the Bible with her. Pray with her. Go to the concerts, the praise concerts. Get her to praise time. That's our mission, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. If you don't think the Bible has a, uh, God has a sense of humor through the Bible, then you didn't read that verse correctly. <laughs> Why am I saying that? Because guys are interested in themselves. And he says, wait a minute, as the way you love yourself, buddy, <laughs> isn't that funny? Love her. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. We're to nourish our wives and cherish our wives, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason... A man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and then circle this. This is a great mystery, or the great mysterion in the Greek, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Boom. Everywhere in the Bible where we see the love of man for his wife. You're looking at a picture of the way Christ loved the church. Now, listen, there was some rough things going on here with Solomon, if you know about the life of Solomon. You say to yourself, why would God use Solomon? Well, see, Solomon started out pretty well. Some people don't even believe this book is about Solomon, or even, or excuse me, is written by Solomon. They just think it's about Solomon. And what they're saying is, or what Solomon, or excuse me, they think it's about Solomon. And so this is just kind of 
uh, a picture of how his life is with the ideal wife. That's how some people see the Song of Solomon. Other people think, yeah, this was written by Solomon, kind of like an Ecclesiastes type thing. He tried everything in the world, and then he knew that the things that he chased after in Ecclesiastes were worthless, but what he needed was God's wisdom. Because I don't know if you know this, but the Bible tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet, some people believe that here is Solomon now writing this after he's learned that all of that was inappropriate and wrong, and he's talking about the one that he married that was in the right way. Get it? In fact, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 11, you see, Solomon had lots of vineyards, but here's one vineyard that he had in Baal Hamon. Not exactly sure where that is, but most people believe that's in the north of Israel. And he leased the vineyard to keepers. And everyone was to bring for its fruit a, fruit, a thousand silver coins. And then, if you turned over to chapter 1, verse 4, sorry to have you jump around so much, here this woman, this young lady, talks about how his, her mother's sons were angry with her when she worked out in the vineyard. So Solomon had vineyards all around Israel, and what he would do is he'd lease them out. And you know, if you were the, the tenant there, you know, you, you were on a, I don't know, $1,000 per month. You were to pay, or excuse me, if you made 1000 bucks, you would pay, you know, 800 bucks to the person who was Solomon, the owner. You get what I'm saying? And some people believe that this girl here, the Shulamite, the girl that's going to get married, was a worker at the vineyard or at one of his vineyards. Everybody tracking with me? Some people think that. Whatever it was and whoever she was, it seems, doesn't it seem, that they were engaged in an ancient Israeli Jewish wedding. Because you know this, right? Like Mary and Joseph, there was this contract sort of made, and then they were betrothed for like a year. And they never knew when the bride was going, or the groom was going to come back for the bride. We've gone over that a lot here. And then when it was the day for the marriage, they would have sort of like a, a week long feast. It was a week long celebration. You think wedding days are long. They were feasting and celebrating for a week, but they would hire professional singers, kind of like we do, and they would get all and, and they would have friends over, and it would be a big party. And they would exchange vows, and then they would consummate the marriage in the chambers. Right? And you're gonna see that all throughout this, this book here. I want you to know this is been a very controversial book. Very controversial book. Some see it just as sort of an, an Eastern erotic love poem. And so 
You know, in modern times, it's really interesting. In modern times, we've kind of shied away from talking about it because here's why. Because we've clouded sex and love and romance with a culture that makes it pornographic. You know this, right? God gives you desires. You have one. You're going to have one here about 1230. You're going to have a desire to eat. God says, that's fine. Tonight around, well, for me, around probably 8.30. For the kids, maybe 12.30. I'm getting older here. I'm going to have another desire, and that's a desire to sleep, and so are you. There's nothing wrong with a desire to eat and sleep. You have that desire. But what happens is that those desires can go out of control. You can overeat. You can be lazy. Well, guess what? God's given us a desire for sexual relations. And the Lord's saying, you're going to know it, you're going to see it here, right through this love poem. Hey, I sanctioned it. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing in the place that I've ordained it for. And that's in a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And I want it to be there. And one of the purposes, Malachi tells us, is that you're going to produce out of here, if the Lord so chooses, out of this union, godly children. And some other things that are going to happen. And here you're going to see these two people who are delighting in each other. So is there a place in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs to learn about a relationship romantically between a husband and a wife? Yes, I would say that's the literal reading of the Song of Solomon. It's this young lady who, by the way, ladies, is very independent, knows exactly what she wants in a guy. You're going to see it here knows in her heart what she wants in a man. And you see a guy then who's, listen, allowed to lead his wife or soon-to-be wife. She's so strong and good and independent and lovely, she recognizes that the role of the person she's going to marry is to lead. Man, is that a message for the ages? I'm going to get some emails about that, I can see. And yet, he, like Ephesians 5, doesn't take advantage of that. He serves and sacrifices and reciprocates and loves. It's beautiful. So yes, we can look at the Song of Solomon on that level. But there's another thing that you need to be aware of as we go through this is that Solomon is a type of Christ. Now, don't compare Christ's life with Solomon's. No way. <laughs> but Solomon was a king who ushered in for Israel a time of peace. Sound familiar? No, don't compare the moral lives of Jesus and Solomon. There's no way. 
Jesus was without sin. In fact, Jesus was single. Singles. And so as we go through this, we're going to look at it on those levels. We're going to look at it about healthy, romantic relationships. But we're also going to look at it with an eye towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, a king or a prince who return, who, who woos and draws his bride, and that's us. Isn't that great? All the while, you're sitting there saying to yourself, I can't believe this guy's up here doing the Song of Songs. All the while, designed to awaken our desire and our love for Christ at its core. Look at this. Verse 1, chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and again, there's a big debate here. Solomon's mentioned at least six times here in chapter one, twice in chapter th- or three times in chapter three, twice in chapter eight. And so most people believe this is Solomon who we're talking about here, who is this man who is going to marry this Shulamite, this young maiden, this country girl, this person who worked maybe, not definitively, on this vineyard, one of Solomon's vineyards possibly. And you, uh, she's called the Shulamite, the young man who we're going to see through here is Solomon. Time out. There's one other view that I didn't tell you about. There's another view that I don't hold to that thinks there's another person or man in this letter, and that Solomon represents the world, the Shulamite represents Christ, and this shepherd that's referred to, a third person, swoops in and keeps the world from the bride. I don't think that's it, but I'll point it out when we get there, okay? And so you have uh, uh, this young maiden, the Shulamite, you have this young man, his Solomon, but you also have a chorus. Isn't that fascinating? I want you to see something right off the bat here, narrow way people, parents who are discipling their kids in dating. There are these people called the daughters of Jerusalem who are like the bridesmaids. And the girl and the guy are always fine with living out their romantic life in a faith community. You're like, why are you getting so excited about that? Because see, here's a big red flag. When a guy and a girl start dating and they just keep it to themselves and they don't share anything with their sisters and brothers, you know what we're supposed to do as the family and the body of Christ is to encourage these relationships in the confines of a faith community because folks, let's face it, sexual desire, as one pastor put it, is like a sleeping lion. And if you let it out too early, it's going to roar and cause havoc and destruction. But if you let it out at the right time in marriage, it's going to be beautiful, delightful, and one of the greatest gifts of your whole life. So what do we do 
You know, I got to just tell you, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I don't care. I see some of us in the Christian community, not that we, um, there's nothing wrong with putting up on Facebook, you know, your kids going to the prom or, you know, going to the dance or all that sort of thing. We all do it. I mean, we all do it. But sometimes in the confines of those proms and dances, and now I'm speaking to the parents, the parents get upset because maybe, you know, Gertrude didn't get invited by the right guy, or, you know, Freddie didn't get invited by the right girl or go to the right party. And it's almost like us as the parents open the door for the lambs to the slaughter and let them go and be and do whatever they want on prom night and gala night and all that sort of thing. Here, I want you to know that there are these daughters of Jerusalem and these brothers of the Shulamite. There's this faith community that helps the romantic um, a relationship grow and develop into the right way and do it the right way. You is everybody tracking with me? I'm passionate about that. You see, because... The way in which we treat sex is sort of like a sticky note. You're like, what? See, a sticky note is amazing, right? Especially for somebody like me who's completely and terribly disorganized. I just have ideas. I have no organization. So a sticky note's great for me. And see, a sticky note is kind of like your romantic life. Sort of. You know that adhesive on the back? See, God designed you with sexual desire adhesive so that when, and it's particular for the man, and it's particular for the wife, so that when you get it in the marriage covenant and you stick together, it's a bonding agent, and you'll still want him, and you'll still want her, and you bind together. The problem is, is when we get in the hookup culture, and we go from one relationship to the other, it's as if the sticky note, you ever had sticky note that you stuck on your sweater and then you try to stick it somewhere else and it won't stick because it's ruined? Not that you get ruined by this. Hold on with that. And you, you try to stick it up and it's really hard to stick. You see, what happens is when we're in the hookup culture and we're using those desires outside of marriage, the bonding agents in our spiritual and emotional and physical life get, what's the word I'm looking for? What? They get weak. And it makes it very much more difficult once you find your mate to bond. And God isn't saying, I don't want to have this for you. I want to have this for you, the Lord says. I endorse it. I'm the maker of it. But I want you to do it in the confines of the marriage so that your sin stays off the adhesive, and you could bond together. Isn't that beautiful? Now, hold on, time out. If you've made mistakes in this area, I got good news for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not lesser because that's happened for you in the past. What matters is from now forward, because <laughs> he can restore what the locusts have eaten the Bible tells us. So there's grace and mercy, so we're not saying that. You get it?
Well, here, this is lived out right here in this faith community. There's a Shulamite, it, it's Solomon, it's the beautiful lady. There's this chorus all around, and watch this. Just like Genesis, right? Okay, man, I'm at the one-year Bible. I'm going to go through Solomon's book, Song of Songs, and I get to the first verse. That's okay. And then she, goes, she drops the bomb, right? Out of nowhere. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You, you know in the ancient world there were different types of kisses. You've seen some people, you know, in modern times come and kiss on the cheek. Well, there were actually nose kisses back then that weren't romantic kisses. And she says, I know what I want. I want that guy to kiss me. And it don't, I don't want it to be a friendly kiss. <laughs> I want it to be a kiss via his mouth. I want it to be that kiss. And then she says this, for your love is better than wine. Your love is better than wine. How does she know that his love is better than wine? Well, look at this. If it's true that he's the owner of the vineyard, she's watched and come and saw him. You see it? And she's seen him interact with other people. She possibly has even seen him interact. This is so important. This is so important. Godly ladies and godly men, this speaks to both of you. She's also seen him in a number of occasions where he's interacting with people that can do nothing for him. Servants. And she loves it. In fact, she goes on to say, and other things, she's, he, he's got this character. How do I know? Because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. See, the name of a person in the Bible speaks of their nature and their character. His character and his nature is like ointment that pours out. It smells so good. <laughs> in New Testament times, now on this side of the cross, how do you and I smell good? <laughs> well, check this out. You spend time with the Lord, and you ask the Holy Spirit to start developing fragrant fruit in your life. You ever gone through like a, an orange, you know, grove, and just the oranges or the, oh man, it's just so beautiful, and that's what she smells. She's seen his character in a number of different circumstances. Are you tracking with me here? She's watched that, and she's fallen in love for that one. She knows what she wants in a godly way, in the right way, and she's attracted to the way in which he treats people who don't or can't do anything right for him or anything for him, really. She sees that all of his character with his family, with his employees, with other people in the world, his character is sweet and fruitful. Now that's, listen, that's a call out to the ladies here. Just because, you know, he drives a Tesla or a Range Rover, the car that you love, and he's an executive in, you know, downtown Pittsburgh and he flies places, that ain't the way to evaluate it, folks. But here on the flip side of that coin, hey guys, whether you're an executive in downtown Pittsburgh and fly over or whether you have a Tesla or not, 
Are you developing your character? Are you spending time with the Lord? Am I spending time with the Lord? God looks on the heart, not the outward stuff. What's beautiful? Though this is beautiful. It's beautiful that she falls in love with this guy's character. Now, am I dismissing attraction, so to speak? Oh, no. I think the Bible teaches that we're made up of three parts. Your body, your soul, which is, listen to this, your mind, your will, and emotions, and your spirit. And I think the way in which you and I and we find mates is when we connect on all three levels. We're attracted to each other. There needs to be attraction. The physical. What's the second thing? The mind, the will, the emotions. You have this connection. You like the same things. Not always. I mean, opposites attract sometimes, and you can work with that. But I mean, you're interested in talking about stuff together, and you connect personally in the, in the deep places of the soul. Emotionally, you're on the same wavelengths. That's attractive. And then spiritually, you're attractive. Folks, you don't want to marry somebody who wants to be a missionary in Switzerland or, or uh, Russia or wherever all across the world if God has called you to be an urban missionary or, excuse me, if God has called you to be a missionary in Appalachia. You know what I'm saying? Or if God's called you to be an executive and do executive missions or something. You know what I mean? You've you got to watch that. Or how about if, here, here's a better example. How about if the guy you're interested in or the girl you're interested in, on the first level, you're attracted. You talk about the same things. But the third thing is you love coming to church and you love serving in church. And the person you're trying to date wants to come on Easter, Christmas, and maybe one other time. Folks, you haven't connected. Watch out. Does that make sense? Here, she seems to be attracted in all these ways. First, she's character. Second, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Sounds pretty physical to me. Your name is ointment poured forth, verse 3. Therefore, the virgins love you. You're saying, well, wait a minute. What do you mean? Okay, there it is. Lived out in community. Don't do your relationships outside of a faith community. That doesn't mean everybody needs to know all your business. But we should be a source of encouragement and accountability and help for people who are entering into this great mystery, right? But also, the virgins love you. What does that mean? They've heard of his character. He hasn't hidden his light under a bushel. No, that should be a song. He's set his light up on a hill, and people know about it. The virgins even love you. And then we see... In verse 4, what this beautiful bride says, draw me away. (laughs) She knows what she wants, folks. This isn't a weak sister in the Lord. This is a strong, independent, loving, passionate young lady. And God ordained that. But look what happens here. 
The daughters of Jerusalem come back and say, we will run after you. Time out, too. Another reason that it's so controversial is these headings that may or may not be in your Bible aren't in the original text. So people disagree about who's speaking in some of these places. Okay, go back to the service or the teaching. I'll try to walk you through that. Well, the beautiful one in the middle there, after the daughters have said, we'll run after you, says, the king has brought me into his chambers. The king has brought me into his chambers. And the Bible says, you can't be called unto the Lord unless he draws you. (laughs) The funny part about this a lot of the times is we say, draw me away, Lord. (laughs) What a prayer. But it does need to be him drawing away and leading. Everybody tracking with me? The Bible says it in John. Well, The daughters respond back, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Can you imagine that? Experiencing someone's love and having it be said that their love is better than wine. Why do you think he uses that? See, watch this. Wine in the Bible, wine, it's always a picture of the pleasures of the world. And and it is good in some ways, although I don't drink anymore. But what is it good for? I mean, it, it, it takes something that's sort of bland, although water's not bland. I've grown to love it. That's a joke. But anyway, and taken it and made something and it just pops, doesn't it? And it's fruitful and it's aromatic, you know, it has an aroma and it's, it's got this, you know, excitement to it. And she's saying, look at this. Your love is better than any of that. I'd rather have your love than any pleasure of the world. Now here, i got to do something with us here. I've been talking here about the love between a man and a woman, and certainly that is true. But i got to shift gears right here. I can't move on until we do this. Catch it. Watch this. You see, when the Lord is speaking here about a man and a woman courting, or the man, yeah, the man and the woman courting each other, or, you know, coming together as engaged people, we would say, it's also speaking, I read to you, about Christ and the church, us. And the bride here says, your love is better than wine. Dr. Ironsides says this about this verse. Listen to this. Christ's love transcends every earthly joy of which wine is a symbol in Christian. One moment spent in fellowship with him, with Christ, is worth all the joys of earth. Do you know what else Ephesians says? Watch this, watch this. This is all about the theme of narrow way. Don't be drunk with wine. Ephesians tells us. But be, in the Greek it means, be being filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Would you be willing to give up any or all, or any earthly pleasure to have just one moment with the Lord. 
See, the only people who would do that are those who've come to the place where we treasure Christ above anything else. Above anything else. So the question becomes, not what every new Christian asks. Every new Christian asks it. Actually, some old Christians ask it. You ever ask this question? I've asked it. As a youth leader, I used to field these questions a lot. So now that I'm a Christian, what can I do? Who's asked it? I've asked it. Oh, okay. Four. You've asked it. I know you've asked it. How close to the line can I come? See, a, peop, a person so enraptured with Jesus Christ never asked that question. We do ask that question, but you get to the place where we don't ask that question. We don't ask, what do we give up? We're always celebrating what we've gained, and that's the presence of Christ. His love is better than wine. All the pleasures of the earth, when you come to that place, you see our love transcends, or his love transcends the earthly joys. Well, getting back to the poem. Verse 5, well, they said, rightly do they love you at the end of verse 4. Now, watch this at verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, now like the curtains of Solomon. Now we run into a problem. Now, this isn't a racial problem. This is a social problem. She's not commenting on the color of her skin for the color of her skin's sake. What was, uh, so, so God is never in the business of race. God loves all of us. It doesn't matter what color, what side of the tracks, what we look like, what our economic status is. He loves us all. We're all one in Christ, so it's not racial, but it's social. Like currently, see, people think the, uh, the wealthy people are tanned and beautiful and have, you know, coconut oil all over themselves. But back at this time, the wealthy people and the, uh, the people who were high fashion were plain and no sun would hit their skin. And what she's saying is, ah, oh, man, I had to go out and work. Will you ever love me? She's insecure, so let's shift gears again. She's insecure about something in her life. Hold on now. Don't raise your hand. But there are any ladies here who are insecure about their looks? By the way, are there any men here insecure about their looks? If we were uh, honest about that problem, I bet you we'd get 100% participation. We'd all put our hands up. And she's like, man, I don't fit into the social norms here. I'm dark. But I'm lovely, I guess, so daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's son were angry with me, which some suggest means she's the half-sister of these brothers, but that's for another day. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I haven't kept. I just haven't kept up with myself. Who said that? I say it every January 1st. <laughs> and I resolved to do something about it, and that lasts till about January 3rd. <laughs> but my own vineyard I haven't kept. I just got too busy, and I was working. And look at this beautiful guy, guys. As she goes on and she says, Tell me, O oh you whom I love, where you feed your flock. I want you to see something here. Although sexual desire is certainly in this poem, catch it. She just wants to be with him. 
She wants to be, find intimacy, not just sexually. She wants to know him and be with him while he's doing out and doing, or he's out doing his work. She just wants to be where he is, feeding the flock. And when you make it rest at noon, where will you be? She wants to be with him. Do you see it? It's not just physical. It's soulish and spiritual for her. I want to be there. I won't, for why should I be as one who veils herself? Oftentimes the prostitutes would veil herself. She's saying, I want to come and just be yours and be it, uh, yours openly and be around you by the flocks of your companions. And look, look how beautiful it is what the guy says. Guys, if you're in here, here's word to the wise. Respond like this. If you don't know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. In other words, I want you to be with me too. And feed your little coats. Come on, even though I'm the owner here, come on, let's go work together. Let's, let's, let's take interest in each other and just find each other how we work together, how we love together. And I'll be there and just come beside the shepherd's tents. Now I got to shift gears again. I'm sorry. But now let's think about Christ and his bride. We're spiritually ugly, folks. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, we're spiritually gross. And we say, the cry of our hearts, I don't care who you're here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you think that the cry of your heart is education, jobs, finding a guy or a girl, having a nice life, and living in a white picket fence. That's what you think the, uh, maybe the cry of your heart is, but the reality is the cry of your heart, Ecclesiastes and other places telling me, tells us, is that you want the love of God the Father. And she says, the, people, the lady says, where can I find you? And I want you to notice something, you and I, who say to ourselves, well, I can find God on the golf course. You know, if I could just go to Yosemite and just be out there, man, I just worship the Lord. I don't need this. Notice what the Bible says here, if you want to find the beloved, the bridegroom, if you want to find the groom, go where the flock is. The Bible tells us don't forsake the assembling together. Don't isolate yourself. Don't be out there in the wilderness. I know COVID happened. I know it's fun to be in your PJs at home. You want to find the Lord, go where his flock is. It might not be this uh, church. That's okay. Get to a great Bible-believing church that's spirit-filled and get where the flock is because that's where the Lord is. And then do this. Don't just go there. Don't be a consumer Christian. Feed the kids. That's a word for goats. Find people who are spiritually children and help feed them. Don't sit on the sidelines. You want to just sit on the sidelines, you know, your whole time in church? He's saying, go with the flow of where I am. Serve. 
That's Jesus. Now we go back to verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now I got some advice for you young guys here. In today's way of talking, don't call your girlfriend a horse. It probably won't work. But to him, see, there were these Pharaoh's chariots that had all these things, headdresses on, and they were, they were beautiful, and they were beauty to look at. They were strong. What's interesting is they were mostly stallions, not mares or fillies, you see. And what he's saying is, look at this. Isn't this wonderful? Man, this needs to go out to the... the, the, the the world, I, you're strong, and you're beautiful, and I love you for who you are. Okay, so what? You've been out in the sun. I love you for who you are. In fact, it's not the ornaments that are lovely. It's your cheeks. In fact, it's not the chains of gold it's your neck. I don't know if I'd say it that way either, but this is a love poem. It, you're, you're beautiful for who you are. What if we did this? Time out, time out, time out for a second. What if us dads and moms and mentors took all the guys of the fellowship that we know and can mentor and commit to this? We're never going to say anything disparaging about our sisters in the Lord. What do guys like to talk about when they're back in the locker rooms? Well, I know. It's usually physical stuff. But what if we empowered the strong ladies who are already strong by saying, hey man, you're just beautiful who you are. Not in any sexual or romantic way, just being friends to people and loving them and encouraging them and and telling them that's beautiful that you're out there in a strong way. And you're beautiful. And, and, and the thing that you just did really encouraged me. And I just wanted to tell you that. What if we committed to that, guys? How great that would make our ladies feel. You see, because they got to do something. They got to drive up and down 51 to see all the billboards they got to go and watch, you know, whatever TV they watch. I don't really try to get into the, I just stick to sports, but whatever. <laughs> but even if you stick to sports, right? If your wife watches with you, your friend watches with you, all you're going to see is these images that are unrealistic. What if we said you're beautiful who you are? Oh, how powerful. Well, we'll make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And here it comes. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. He is just, that, that is an, he's an oasis out in the middle of desert. That's the place that David hid from Saul when Saul was trying to chase him and He's a sacrificial guy. He smells of death in the right way. He sacrifices for me. We read it in Ephesians chapter 5. Guys, let's be sacrificial with our families and our wives. 
Behold, verse 15, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Well, you know this. The eyes reveal what's inside. Look what the beloved sees. This is, ladies, this is what you want a guy to see in you. You want him to see the life and light of Christ. A dove is representative of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ. What do you want Christ to, or guys to see in you? You want them to see Jesus. And if they are looking and they aren't seeing Jesus, not because you're not Spirit-filled, because they want to see other things, big red flag. Oh, by the way, folks, time out. Let's shift gears to Christ and his bride. You think, I hear this all the time. Oh, my gosh. I only read my Bible four times last week. I only gave 20 bucks in the box. I didn't call this person, and, you know, now they're sick, and I'm just so guilty, and I'm not even worthy. Listen to this. He looks into your eyes. And he sees his spirit. You're accepted with Christ. He sees you. God sees you as perfectly righteous in him. He understands you make mistakes, but he's paid for them all. You don't have to live in the past and the mistakes. You can just move on. Isn't that beautiful? Check this out. You're fair, my love. I love you just as you are. If Guys, if we would just say to our wives, you're beautiful. You know what I've learned? Real quick, I'm going over a little bit, I know. You know what I've learned? I don't really care if somebody tells me I look good after I get my hair cut. I got a bush on my head, folks. What is anybody going to do with that? I, I, I couldn't care less. I mean, I just don't care. I don't care. I'll, I had this guy at law school cut my hair. He had a rusty razor, and he was drunk all the time. But he cost about five bucks, and I was a poor law student, and I just went and did it, and his name was Kermit, and it was funny. And, you know, if a guy gives you a bad haircut, what do you do? You put on a hat. Who cares? I learned something, though. When my wife goes to get a haircut... <laughs> You know, and she comes home, and you know, there's a football game. Like, you know, she'll go get it sometimes on Saturday, and the Buckeyes are on, and she'll, she'll come through the door. I don't care if my haircut looks bad. Why should you care? But she wants to know. Look what they've done here. The beloved says, behold, you're fair, my love. Behold, you're fair. You have dove's eyes, and look what comes right back, and you're handsome. There's this mutuality of love and compliment. People aren't reserved and holding back. They t give themselves to each other. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green and the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fur. We could go into the whole thing about how secure she wants to be. We'll save that for a later day. This home is secure. And she says, by the way, she says... I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys, which they've put a popular song to talk about Christ, but many people believe this is still the girl who is talking, not the, bride, the groom. She says, I'm just a normal country flower out in the middle of the desert, and I'm a lily of the valleys. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. He goes, wait a minute. 
That's not true. You're like a lily among thorns. I want you. And don't you ever forget it. That's Jesus, folks. That's Jesus. Who here feels like they're unworthy to Jesus? He says, I know you think you're just a country flower. You're just plain Jane or plain Joe, but I want you. Isn't that beautiful? So is my love among, or like Lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods. She comes right back. So is my beloved among the sons. What do you find in the woods? You find pine trees, not apple trees. You are beautiful and stable and fruitful, and you're unique, and you're the one I want. You see, she's a strong lady. She knows what she wants. And I sat down in his shade with great delight. He protected me. And his fruit was sweet to my taste, and there was so much I could glean from him. Now, if I shifted gears, because I'm running out of time, here's where I would shift to. With the bride of Christ and Christ, remember, we can know all we want about Jesus and never be impacted until we taste and see that the Lord is good, the Psalms say. We take him in for ourselves you're going to eat of his body and drink of his blood, you yourself, and be impacted. And it's going to hit you in the breast, in the chest, in the heart. And you're going to respond back. And he brought me to the banqueting table or the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love, which I think is a beautiful thing, ladies. You want a guy who will fight for you. That's what a banner was. But he fights in a different way, with love. He doesn't want to hide it from everybody. He wants everybody to know, this is my one. By the way, that's Jesus for you. And sustained me with cakes of raisins, verse 5. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head. He nurtures me, and his right hand embraces me. I mean, I am face to face with him. And I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, which, by the way, gazelles and does were very fertile. Here it comes. I did this all to get to here. Don't stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. You should know something here. The phrase in the uh, Hebrew here for gazelles and does is a play on word. And the play on words is, he's using the words for gazelles and does that sound exactly like two names for the Lord himself. And what he's saying is, don't stir up nor awaken this love until it pleases. They know because they've been helped by the Lord and helped by their faith community, watch this, that there was a time and place for this desire. And it wasn't until they made the commitment and started the submission unto each other that the desire for each other was allowed to be opened up and bloomed in the wedding chamber. Hey, parents, it doesn't matter in the long run if your kid is the homecoming queen or the homecoming king or is most popular. If they're popular, great. If they're not popular, great. But don't sacrifice them on the altar of sexuality when they're 14 and 15 and 16 years old. Come on. Don't let it bloom too early. Hey, kids, 
can we get to the place where we're more interested in submitting our lives and committing to Christ before we stir up and awaken the passion within the marriage? I'll stop. Lots of you are saying amen. Boy, this book has a lot to tell us about our desires for each other and where they're appropriate and why they're appropriate. God's never a killjoy in this way. No, he created it. He just wants you to use your desire in the right way at the right time with the right person. And oh, by the way, if you're struggling with your desire for Christ, here's what I would say. Have you completely submitted your life to him? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You've said a prayer off the back of a magazine maybe, but have you submitted everything? Look at this. Your life, your family, your career, your hobbies, your extracurricular. Have you submitted everything to him so that you wouldn't be drunk with the pleasures of the world, but be filled up with his spirit? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We Lift up this time and we pray, Lord, that you would have your way in us as we take a fresh look at this, at this book. Knit these things to our heart here today, Lord, so that when we go out, you will give us zeal for you, Lord, and to the things that you have for us so that we could love a hurting and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.